In this week's episode of the podcast, we are going to continue our discussions about IEPs with my guest, Julie Swanson, aka the Life Skills Lady. For those of you who live in Connecticut and you have inquired about an advocate at some point or another, chances are you have heard Julie's name. Julie is one of the OGs of education <laughs> advocates in Connecticut and is a mentor to so many of the advocates who have joined the ranks after her. Julie is the parent of a 28-year-old adult son with autism. She is a special education advocate who has advocated for more than 1,000 autistic students over her long career. Julie created her website, lifeskillslady.com, to help parents and school teams understand the full scope of life skills and their critical link to the quality of life and increased outcomes in adulthood for individuals with autism. As part of this work, Julie offers transition tune-ups to help clients with the process of transitioning to adulthood. Julie is also the author of Your Special Education Right, What Your School District Isn't Telling You, and the companion website, yourspecialeducationrights.com, a video-based website that helps parents understand their rights under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So with that, let's talk to Julie. Welcome to the Autism Mom Coach, a podcast for moms who feel overwhelmed, afraid, and sometimes powerless as they raise their child with autism. My name is Lisa Candera. I'm a certified life coach, lawyer, and most importantly, I'm a full-time single mom to a teenage boy with autism. In this podcast, I'll show you how to transform your relationship with autism and special needs parenting. You'll learn how to shift away from being a victim of your circumstances to being the hero of the story you get to write. Let's get started. Good afternoon, Julie, and thank you so much for being here. Please introduce yourself and tell us how you came to be a special education advocate. Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, and I think we're both so happy that we've finally met each other. So thank you for having me on. I mean, I've done a, quite a bit of introducing you. So if there's anything that you want to add, please do. But in addition, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about how you became a special education advocate. Right. So I have a 28-year-old son, Alex, who has an autism spectrum disorder. Alex has a high level of support needs. He has an intellectual disability. He is nonverbal, non-speaking. He's the most wonderful guy you'd ever want to meet. But, you know, he was diagnosed with autism back in 1996, okay, when the explosion of autism was just starting. And it's an important note to remind folks that back in that day, there were no cell phones. I remember having a conversation with my husband saying, should we buy one of these computers? Do you think they'll take off? I, <laughs> I had to look up autism in a set of red 1950s encyclopedias that made me go home and cry in my bed for three days. And it was sort of the dark ages of autism, if you will, right? And I very quickly learned after I got out of my funk and decided, you know, to pull myself up from my bootstraps and get busy 
that I needed to get an ABA program, an applied behavior analysis program in place for him. And a long story short, I asked our school district if they would do an ABA program. The short answer was no. And the first question was- what? (laughs) Yeah. The first question literally was, what's ABA? So I had, I think, one of the first hearings in the state of Connecticut over an ABA program. To make a really long story short, we ended up prevailing on that case. But some of the things that came out of it were notes that we found in the school districts, you know, when we discovered some of their notes, was a note that said, what if this child is not autistic and the mother is seeking attention? So this really paints a picture of the times that it was. There was not one board-certified behavior analyst in the entire state of Connecticut. I had to privately hire a BCBA to start a home program from Rutgers in New Jersey. Yeah. So we ended up hiring an attorney. And if you've ever been through a due process, which I wish on no one, by the way, it is a boot camp in understanding this law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And after we prevailed, I started to get a lot of phone calls from people. You know, we live in a small state here in Connecticut. Yeah. And the phone calls, as autism kept shooting up, like it exploding, the phone calls just got more and more and more to the point where I was always willing to talk to folks and help them wherever I can. But at some point around the time that I was also deciding, do I need to go back to work? Because I was able to stay home with my two young kids at the time. I said to myself, I think this could be a business for me. I think people need this help and I know how to help them. So, you know, at that time, there were only two other advocates, you know, who I know of in the state who were advocates at that time. And of course, now we just have many, many, many advocates, which is a wonderful thing. So I got into it because I was advocating for my own child and I couldn't have planned it. I didn't want to grow up to become a special education advocate. Prior to my son being diagnosed with autism, I was in television production and public relations. And so it couldn't have been any further from what I'm doing now. But I love what I do. And it was, I don't want to say a happy accident, but it it, it just happened and I couldn't have planned it. Yeah. No, there's so much to unpack with your answer. And I want to start with you said your son was diagnosed in 90, what was it? Six. He was born in 94, and he was not quite three when he was diagnosed. He was still technically two. Wow. Yeah. So my sister was diagnosed with PDD-NOS early 90s, and now that does fall under the spectrum. And I just remember my parents' situation was trying to find answers, trying to find solutions, people to help her. And, you know, it was, she got ping-ponged around so much because there was so little out there. But the comment in the notes about, is this mother making it up? You know, it reminds me of one of, it's like, thank God you found that, but to see it, right? Because that's what we all are feeling so many times. Even now, you know, with the gaslighting, like my son is appearing very high-functioning on the outside. And so I think sometimes with school districts and they see that he's walking like a duck, talking like a duck, doing all the things. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And so it can be really discouraging and deflating sometimes that when people don't see what you know to be true and what you're experiencing. So, okay. Wow. I think kids with lower support needs and who are higher on the spectrum are actually the hardest kids to get qualified for special education and get services for because they appear to not have any needs if you don't scratch the surface. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and at some point, there's a balloon note somewhere where all of a sudden this this child has been trying to hold it together and then something finally happens where everybody's like, oh, maybe there are some issues here. Yeah, for my son, that was COVID and puberty hitting at the same time. It was oh, like, my dear. boom. Yeah, so, but you know, it just you know, going back really quickly to that note, you know, there was something called the refrigerator mom syndrome. That's exactly what I was thinking about when you said that. And I'll say this, and I'll let you move on to the next question. I will say this. To this day, it put the fire in my belly. Yeah. It was something that at the time ticked me off so badly, I can't even begin to tell you. And it's probably one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I could use a more choice word, but I'm just going to say it really ticked me off. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because when my son was diagnosed, like right at the time he was diagnosed is when the HBO movie of Temple Grandin's life came out. And in that movie, they talk about the refrigerator mom. And I remember having that in my brain, that that's what people would think of me because my child was autistic. And I was ridiculously like so loving to him as much as I could. And my son is very pro-social and he was very lovey and very like all of the things that we don't think kids with autism are or that some kids aren't. And so when I saw all of him displaying all of that, I have to admit that because I carried some of those old thinkings and stereotypes and pictures in my mind, it really made me question, like, is he really autistic? Like, maybe he's not. And I mean, I don't question it at all now, but there was confusion early on. Sure. Sure. Well, thankfully, I'm sure some people still think it, but thankfully, it's not exactly something that, thankfully, we're not dealing with as much as we were back in my day. So, Julie, when I first heard about you, it was through a mutual friend of ours, Christine Faressa, who runs Mm -hmm. the wonderful nonprofit Sun, Moon, and Stars for families, families of children with autism. And she served not only the children, but also the families with caregiver support. And I tease Christine all the time that she is essentially the YMCA of Watertown because I can't believe how many events that she puts on like amazing all of the time. So that's how I came to learn of you through her CARES program for parents. And you were so interesting to me because your whole focus was on life skills. And when I heard life skills, I was thinking of kids who were adults or transitioning to adulthood. And I didn't at all really associate life skills with IEP plans for younger children. And so I just became really interested in that. And I've been following you ever since. So could you speak to that, why your focus is on life skills, why it's important and how you work with families in this regard? Absolutely. So, you know, I've been advocating for more than 20 years. And like I said, the other day, I figured out, I said, I think I've worked with at least a thousand, you know, think about that more than, you know, 20 plus years. And 
I couldn't believe it when I added it up. I'm like, oh, geez, I, I guess I really have been doing this for a long time. And so I have a lot of life experience with this, right? And over time, and I started to see this trend that was very disturbing to me. And it included things like lots of parents were coming to me in what I call the 11th hour. So, you know, you're coming to me when your child is already in high school trying to plan for adulthood. And I look over the IEP and there's nothing in there that has ever assessed their adaptive or life skills. And they're not ready to move on to meet the demands of everyday life beyond academics, right? And there's so much focus put on academics, which is wonderful, don't get me wrong. But I don't know where I once read this, but it is not our IQ that's going to predict how well we do in life. It's our adaptive skills. Mm -hmm. And this is so true, not only for people who don't have a disability, but especially true for so many of our folks who have autism, right? So people were coming to me the, in the 11th hour. And I, you know, here's the way that I look at that. We have this precious education that our tax dollars pay for with this very limited amount of time to get all this work done. And when you start the process late, you're trying to squeeze all these skills into this very small box, which almost becomes impossible. Mm -hmm. And then time runs out on this precious commodity called our education. And if you have to do these things after you exit, which you know can be depending on the state you live in here in Connecticut, we just changed it to 22. You know, as parents, you have to pay for all of these things on your own. And whether that comes through sweat equity or your time, or you're actually paying someone to do it. But that's what the special education process is supposed to do. And I believe very strongly that we're partners with our education systems, but the schools have fundamental legal obligations that they must, you know, meet. The other things is, even when people were coming to me very early with their kids, there was a paucity of life skills and adaptive skills. So I'd hear about kids who were having, as you say, a lot of dysregulation or behaviors, right? <laughs> with no plan in place, no IEP goals, no behavior intervention plans, or they have all these lagging skills that they talk about at the IEP team, but no goals to address them, right? Or I would see that the adaptive and life skills were not assessed. The other thing that I was seeing was the fight that even someone like myself with all of my experience had to convince school teams that, yes, we can add life skills into the IEP. And I'm going to come back and focus on that in a minute. And then the other thing that really pulled it all together with me, for me, and I want to make sure I say this in a way that nobody's going to be offended, right? Because there's a lot of self-advocates who do very well and lots of folks on the autism spectrum with autistic folks who do very well in life. But there is, unfortunately, statistically, many of our adults who have autism who don't do as well as we would love for them to do, right? Yeah. And the statistics are not great, okay? So I said to myself, why do we still have the numbers of autism going through the roof, but we're still exiting kids from the system with poor outcomes? We can change this and we can do it one student at a time. So even though the pandemic was a horrific time, 
right? It finally allowed me the time to say, I'm going to finally do the idea I've wanted to do for so long, which is the lifeskillslady.com and all my social media. And it took me a long time, but it was my passion project during the pandemic. And I set out to write pages on my website that walked people through this process on how you can advocate and incorporate life skills into your child's IEP. Because I feel very strongly that, you know, not all folks can afford an advocate. And I wanted this information to be accessible and free for people. Let me tell you how to do it. I do it every day. Here are the steps you have to go through. I love that. I will tell you that the term falling off the cliff has been my personal boogeyman since my son was diagnosed 13 years ago. Right. And I know that so many of our parents live in fear of that day. And so when you talk about life skills, can you talk a bit about like, when does this start? How old is the child when we start to incorporate life skills? And what do those life skills look at different times in their lives? As early as is possible. And can I answer that question in sort of a surreptitious way? Go for it. Let me remind everybody what the definition of an IEP is according to the IDEA. Where's my sheet? Hold on a second. Good Lord. Now I got to find that one. Hold on. Okay. So if you look in the IDEA under the definition of an IEP, and I'm abridging this, okay? It's very long, but I'm giving you the take-home points, okay? It is a statement of the child's present levels of academic achievement, and here comes the money shot right here, and functional performance, functional performance. And it is including how the child's disability affects the child's involvement and progress in the general education curriculum. Now, this is where most, I should say, many folks who work in school districts stop reading, and they interpret this statute right there and then. That's where the door closes. But if you go on to read further in the statute, it says, and to meet each of the child's other educational needs that result from the child's disability. So a common refrain that I will hear, and I'm sure many folks here at IEP team meetings, is we don't see that life skill or that lagging skill impacting their ability to access general education. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back to the very first sentence in the definition of an IEP. It is the present, the statement about the present level of the child's academic achievement and functional performance. So being in special education is not just about how well we are doing academically. And so for many of our folks who have autism spectrum disorders, it can be equally important, or I would argue equally important, to be focusing on their social, their emotional, their behavioral, their mental health. All of these things impact our functional performance. Now, the IDEA did not go on to define what functional performance is, but it is generally known to be the skills that we need to meet the demands of everyday life. Think about that for a minute. Think about all the skills we need to meet the demands of everyday life. That's a lot. 
That's a big rock that we sometimes don't pick up and look under. Okay. So your question was, you know, when do we start incorporating it and how do we do it? Well, you have to be prepared to say to your school team, look, I want to assess my child's functional skills. What assessments can you do? Now, if they say to you, well, we don't really need to address life skills. I am, and it will be on my website, and I will make it available. I'm going to do sort of a cheat sheet on what you can say and refer to this part of the statute. But the fact of the matter is, without that, you simply say that special education is about a child's present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. And I believe that my child's functional performance is adversely impacting their education, social, emotional, behavioral, mental health, etc. So this is why, even though the IDEA says that transition services must start no later than 16, and in many states it's earlier, like here in Connecticut, a couple of years ago we changed it to 14. I want people to start, and you can start, including all of these skills when your child is in preschool and kindergarten. Wow. That's so helpful, Julie. Can you just expand a little bit? Like, what would life skills look like for a child at three years old? Like, at this point, they are pre-verbal. We don't know if they will become verbal at some point. They're not potty trained at this point. And let's say there, there are some behaviors and a lack of social skills. Right. So I'll give you some examples of common lagging skills I see that school districts will sometimes be resistant to incorporating into the IEP. Okay. So let's talk about eating. Okay. So many of our kids, right, are carboholics, right? Mm -hmm. That's just one example. And think about the fact that how we nourish our bodies has everything to do with how we learn. It's an adaptive skill. It's a life skill all day long. So just how we eat and are we eating a variety of foods is a life skill and can absolutely be addressed through an IEP. Another example might be, you know, when somebody needs to be potty trained, right? Now, and listen, I understand this. So many school districts will say when you're in preschool or kindergarten, oh, we've got lots of kids who, you know, were potty training. That doesn't need to be in the IEP. Well, I always like for it to be in the IEP because then there's no accountability to actually acquire that skill if it's not an IEP goal, right? And so many kids who have autism end up as they become older with bowel issues, you know, toileting issues. And boy, there's no game stopper more than, you know, not being potty trained if you are an older person, right? So that's a very important life skill. Dysregulation behaviors. This is another one, right? That's another game stopper. That is a barrier that is going to be there all day long if you don't have the adaptive skills to participate safely, right, where you're not at risk to yourself or others. So just making sure that you have goals around behavior, whether that's aggression, elopement, you know, think about the pandemic and how many of our kids couldn't wear masks through the pandemic. 
and think about how small their world became when they could no longer go out in the community, or well, perhaps they did, but certainly, you know, perhaps unsafely, that just a simple adaptive skill like wearing a mask is an example that if you don't learn that skill, your world may become very small, right? Yeah, I remember, that makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, I remember the first day I put a mask on my son, Alex, and what, at first he was like, what are you doing, lady? Mm-hmm. I, nobody's ever done this to me before. And we practiced it and we did it in little small increments. And then, you know, eventually he wore it, thank goodness. But I know for many kids, they never mastered the skill of wearing a mask. So, you know, these become barriers that can make our lives very small. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, over all the years, I always like to say to folks, if I had to sum up, I think the two most important skills is we want our kids to be flexible. We want kids to be able to go with the flow. Something changes and we go with the flow. We know that's really hard for a lot of our kids. You have to start working on that at a very young age. You don't want to just start working on those things when a child is older, right? I'm not saying that it's impossible to help them at that point, but it's a whole lot better if you start earlier, right? So being flexible and having emotional regulation, right? Because without those things, these become barriers to getting out in the world, having meaningful relationships with people, getting out into the community, having a job, going on to post-secondary education and living independently. Yeah, that's so interesting because like I think of my son in when his younger years and he learned a lot about emotional regulation and rigidity. I think it was through I'm gonna I Michelle, somebody Garcia. There we go. The raw brain and super flex and all of that. But that was part of his speech and language Mm -hmm. therapy. That wasn't specifically a life skill, I don't think, that they carved out into its IEP. I remember my son, he loved the rock brain and super flex. And they started last to, man. yeah, it's the last man. And they started to talk about everybody in that. And so, you know, if I did something, mom, you're being kind of rock brain. And he would yeah. call the animals rock brain whenever they would right, do what right. he wanted them to do. <laughs> right. I mean, the language becomes a little inappropriate as someone gets older. And so many kids who are, you know, you've got level one, level two, and level three autism, level three being, you know, lower support needs, may not qualify for speech and language services because their receptive, expressive, and pragmatic skills on paper are intact. But it is the applying of those skills, right, that sometimes is where their deficit areas come in, applying it, right? Generalizing it. And so many kids are still getting those pragmatic language services, but through whether or not it's the social worker or the school psychologist, you know, not from a traditional speech and language pathologist. So it doesn't always have to be a speech and language pathologist. So what is your suggestion for the parent who maybe isn't going in with an advocate and wants his or her school to address life skills for their child? Well, I would first, and please understand I'm not trying to be self-serving here, but read every single page of my lifeskillslady.com because the whole thing is a love letter, if you will, to supporting life skills in the IEP, right? And what I like to say to all parents is, look, what you don't know can hurt you. So you've got to educate yourself. So 
look, go out and buy the rights law book. It's like a Bible, okay? It has everything you could possibly think of as far as what the statutes are as it relates to special education. You can also go to a website I created with my partner on many projects, attorney Jennifer Laviano, called yourspecialeducationrights.com, which is sort of a, an ode to my background in television production, because I, I love all that. And I created that because with Jennifer, because I knew how difficult it was for parents to learn about their rights. And, you know, reading something in a book can be very stale and you just like, well, what do I do with that information? But the reason we created yourspecialeducationrights.com, it's sort of like two girlfriends coming to you and saying, listen, here's what you need to know about the IEP. Here's what LRE is, least restrictive environment. Here's what you need to know about this, that, or the other. So we tried to make it very, like you're just having a conversation with some friends, somebody who can explain it to you in, in more realistic terms. And also, parents really need to tap into their parent training and information centers. Every state is required by the federal law to have one of these centers. And it is a free resource where you're able to call these folks up and say, here's my situation. Can you explain it to me? And, you know, the other thing is parent training is a highly underutilized related service, related services being speech. OT, PT, transportation, etc. Well, parent training is designed for parents to understand their child's disability and also how do they support their child's IEP. So if you don't understand your child's disability or how it impacts them and how you can support the IEP, don't forget about asking for parent training. That's really helpful, Julie. The issue that I come into is the disconnect between what the statute says, what the law requires, and then talking to the school. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yes, indeedy. So, you know, what I find is, look, I am the biggest fan of public schools and I'm the biggest fan of teachers. And it's very difficult to be a teacher in today's world. I know in teachers, everybody knows that. But what I find is that Jen and I actually devoted a chapter to it in our book called Special Education Urban Legends. And what happens is when you work in a school district for years and years, you will be told by the teacher next to you or your administration or whomever, well, this is the way we do it here. And you know, the law says this or a law says that. And, you know, my goodness, people who work in school districts aren't for living learning about the IDEA and what it actually says. I'm sure many do. So a lot of times school districts will unwittingly, people who work in school districts will unwittingly say something that they think is what the law is or something to be true, when in fact it's not. So that's why you really need to understand what the laws are. Because when you hear in an IEP meeting somebody say something that isn't true, you'll be able to say, gee, I'm not sure about that. I didn't understand it to be that way. So I think it's just another reason why, you know, really try to learn as much as you possibly can. And if you can afford it, you know, you can always work with a special education advocate or, you know, get as much information as you can from your parent training and information center. Yeah, I think that that's really good advice. I have jokingly said in the past 13 years that 
Being in a special education meeting or situation reminded me of the scene in Austin Powers where he asked once and it's no, he asked twice and it's no, and he asked three times and all of a sudden, like, he gets the answer. And I feel like that's been my experience with school districts in a way of, like, having to know what to ask, who to ask, what to say, how to say it, and, you know, to to turn the magic key almost. And so that, to me, is something that I found both frustrating and intimidating. Right. Well, you know, just like with anything else in life, we need to be informed consumers, right? And special education isn't really what, you know, we think of education as it used to be, you know, the red apple on the teacher's desk. It's a business. It's all about money and resources. At the end of the day, you're fighting over too little money and too few resources. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I like to tell parents that if a school district ever says something like, well, you know, this is the way we do it here, or we were told you can't do that because, right? And it doesn't feel right. And it's just a really simple thing to say. And, you know, I try to say, you know, go in with a good attitude. You know, yes, it can be so aggravating and you can get so angry, but yelling at people typically doesn't get you anywhere, right? So very diplomatically, you say, could you please provide me with the written authority to support your position? It's the best phrase you'll ever learn and say. Would you please provide me with the written authority to support your position? It's not threatening. It's not mean. It's just like, gee, that doesn't feel right to me. Can you just point me out to where's that written down somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Julie, can you share with us what a transition tune-up is and to whom you offer it? Right. So I offer that service to parents whose children are approaching the transition process. And as I explained before, federally, that's 16. It can start earlier, as in many states have it earlier. But there's nothing that precludes an IEP team from making an individualized decision that says, you know what, for this child, we need to start the process even earlier, right? There's nothing that precludes us from that. So having said that, if you are at the point where you're starting to think about your child's adulthood and where are you going and how do you get there and all of that that you're worried about, which I know I was worried about myself for years. I was, I was almost apoplectic over it, you know? Yeah. I would say the transition tune-up is for you. And what I'm able to do in that is take a look at the, the IEP and, of course, evaluations and such, and look at all the key components of the IEP that really need to be in place for that process to begin. So that includes assessments. That includes vision statements, if you will. Here in Connecticut, we call them post-school outcome goal statements. And there are three areas that the IDEA says that we must look at in adulthood. And it's actually in the very first paragraph of the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, for the purpose of this whole law. And that is to make sure that our children who have disabilities, who are receiving special education, become adults who can be, I'm paraphrasing, successful in post-secondary education or training. So that might be anywhere from, you know, community college to university to hairdressing school. And the other one being employment. 
and think about that. You could have the skills to get a job, but do you have the skills to keep the job? That's where a lot of our folks with autism have a tough time. Not all, but some, okay? And then the other one, if appropriate, says the IDEA, independent living. And I can't begin to tell you how many IEP teams I have to really, I say the word fight, not like I get in a fight, okay? But that I have to fight to convince folks that yes, they don't have all the skills they need to live independently. And that's where all the life skills and the adaptive skills come in. And I would argue that for lots of our folks who have autism spectrum disorders, we need to have post-school outcome goal statements for independent living. Because what skills does that include? Think about the 10 basic life skills. We've got our practical life skills, which include work. So that's the ability to maintain part of full-time work. Health and safety. Think about our health. Are you able to make your own doctor's appointment? Safety. Think about the fact that individuals with autism get abused and assaulted seven times more than people in the general population where they're victimized. So, so often we don't look at what is the health and safety of our folks. And I also think about internet safety, right? Ask me how many people I've worked with over the years whose kids have gotten arrested because they've gotten into trouble on the internet or they've said something, they, they just didn't read the situation correctly. And now they've got criminal records. Community use, how are we able to get into the community and you know, transportation, shopping, et cetera. Home or school living, how do we take care of the space we live in? And of course, self-care, which includes our hygiene, eating, dressing, bathing, et cetera. Those are all practical life skills. Then the next category of life skills are our social skills. And that includes, of course, social skills, maintaining interpersonal relationships, understanding emotional and social cues, et cetera. Here's one of my favorites that we hardly ever look at, and that is leisure skills, taking responsibility for our own activities. How many of our kids today spend a little bit too much time with their face in a computer screen? And the percentage of the day that they're doing that can become problematic. We want to make sure that we have leisure skills, walking, swimming, biking, bowling, puzzles, etc. And then the, the, the third category is conceptual skills. And this is really what can be the most challenging for many of our folks, our artistic individuals, and that is self-direction. And self-direction includes problem solving. Think about that one. Problem solving could be very challenging for many of our folks. Exercising choice, initiating and planning activities, skills needed for independence, etc. Functional academics. So that's, you know, using reading, writing, and math skills in everyday life. How do you tip somebody? How do you write an email to somebody? All of the practical academic skills and communication, understanding and using verbal and nonverbal language. And I skipped over something I wanted to mention. I recently was so thrilled to be speaking at the Utah Valley University out in Utah, and they have a autism center out there. And I spoke at one of their conferences, and one whole day was devoted to autism and sexuality. Oh, wow. We have to talk about sexuality more, right? And not so much the act of having sex, but the skills 
that we need to not become victims. And understanding consent, right? The propensity for some of our autistic individuals to potentially be victimized and understanding consent and all of that. And I just don't think we talk about these things enough. So Julie, as you know, I coach parents about their struggles handling the challenges of raising children with autism. Yes. As a parent of a child with autism, as an advocate who sees a lot of parents in difficult situations, what is your advice for the parent who is in the early years of the diagnosis? Well, first of all, to never, ever give up hope and don't listen to folks who are going to place limitations on your child, right? And the other one would be educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself. You know, not that we ever wanted to become subject experts in autism and how to advocate for our children, but if you don't, who will? As my mother used to say, Julie, there's no one waiting in line behind you to do this job. You're it. You've got to do it. So step up, right? There's no luxury in it. There's zero luxury in it. But you know, our kids are worth it, right? There's nothing in life worth fighting for more than our children. And so I would say, because I am the life skills lady after all, incorporate life skills into your child's IEP as early as is possible. And as I said earlier, educate yourself around the IDEA and just really get on that education wheel. What would you say for parents in terms of their own personal experience and their own personal struggles as parents and as advocates and wearing so many hats? Right. You know, you have to take time for yourself and you have to give yourself some grace and understanding and do as many things as you can for yourself. And it's, I mean, it's widely recognized, you know, as my mother used to say, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So I don't think it's selfish for us to have to take care of ourselves. And to not be the primary caregiver all the time, you know, take advantage of some of the other natural supports that are in your household, whether that be your partner, your other children, you know, reach out to family. I see so many with mothers in particular who do absolutely everything and who the heck wouldn't get burnt out. Absolutely. You know, you say to your client, your mom said to you, no one's behind you to do the job. What I say to my clients is the Calvary isn't coming. So the only person who is going to make sure that you are taken care of and that you get a break is you. And I hate to add another thing to your to-do list, but again, right. Calvary is not coming. You know, I went through a period around the time that I was in due process, and my parents were very helpful to me at that time and to my family. And I remember my mother, because I was very, I was angry at the time, right? Very angry that we had to go through the expense of this, because going to due process is financially expensive, emotionally costly, time sucker, right? So many. You're in limbo. It's so, it's it's so emotionally. It's so, as a matter of fact, when it was over, I didn't know what to do with myself any days. Who am I fighting today? And and after a while, I'm like, oh, I don't need to fight anybody, actually. Isn't this lovely? But my mother always said, Julie used to be so nice. (laughs) And I said, Mom, I am still nice, but you, you know, eventually the nice Julie will come back. But I, I went through some years where I was just like, 
mm, you know? <laughs> yeah, understandably so. Well, Julie, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your experiences. And I really want to let people know like how they can find you, how they can work right. with you. What are the next steps? Well, thank you. First of all, you could go to my website, lifeskillslady.com, and I can be reached. I have a, you know, one of those contact Julie things on that site. I also have an advocacy site called JS Advocacy for Julie Swanson, jsadvocacy.com. You can find me at Life Skills Lady on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And just, you know, one final plug. This is a, I'm holding it up. Nobody can see it. But I have something called the Life Skills Cheat Sheet for IEP planning. And if you go on my website, this you can download for free. You just have to give me your, your email address. And, you know, that way I can stay in touch with you and you can be on my newsletter list and any kind of announcements that I have. But it's free. And it is a one-page cheat sheet, if you will, that lays out all the categories of the life skills so that when you're talking to your IEP team, you can speak intelligently about it. Not to say that you're not intelligent. That came out the wrong way. But I like the idea of actually printing that out and they're talking to you and you're looking at it, looking at them, looking at it, looking at them. (laughs) Right. And soon I will have up there the cheat sheet for the language you need around the definition of an IEP and why you can incorporate life skills into the IEP. I love that. That's fantastic. That is such an amazing resource. And even if you haven't hired an advocate, if you're speaking all of this language, it might be red flag to the school that you might be soon. <laughs> so, That's right. That can be helpful to you as well. That's right. That's right. And, you know, a lot of folks say to me, a lot of parents say to me, oh, well, I don't want the school retaliating against me if I bring I hear that all the time. And I say, look, you are not going to be the first person to bring an advocate or advocate for your child. They've seen this. And guess how many parents sitting around that table are also parents? And if we're in your shoes, would be doing exactly what you are doing. You don't have to be nasty. You can be polite and nice. Nothing says that once you advocate for your child, you have to become a nasty person. It's 100%. And I'll have to tell you from my experience hiring advocates is I've gotten much nicer once I got to hire the advocates because I got to just be mom. Yes. really just let them take the lead. And that was, you know, taking the lead a lot of times in front of the school, we would have our own conversations. But sometimes when we would get to those calls, especially when we were having IEP meetings very regularly, I was exhausted. I was happy to have someone else take the lead for me. Mentally exhausting. And, you know, for anyone out there, any parents out there who don't know how to find advocates, A, you can contact your state's Parent Training and Information Center, but there's also a wonderful website called COPA, and that is C-O-P-A-A, and it stands for Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates.org. And that has some pages on it where you can plug in your state and it will bring up all the advocates and attorneys in your state. Oh, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. I've been a longtime member of COPA. It's a wonderful organization. That's fantastic. Well, Julie, thank you again so much for being here. It was really a privilege to have you here. I feel like I've finally spoken to the legend. Oh, stop. You're so (laughs) No, I can't tell you how much I appreciate 
finally meeting you. And I am so thrilled to have been a guest. And I always just hope after I've done something like this, that a parent walks away with just even one nugget of information they didn't know before. So I'm sure that that will happen just given the focus on the life skills. And I think that for the parents, when they're getting started, there are so many other things that we're focusing on and life skills might be one that is not so much of a focus, right? And so just putting this nugget in their brains that this is something to ask and advocate for as well is good. Right. One more thing before we go, Julie, can you tell us about your book? Sure. So special education attorney Jennifer Laviano and I wrote a book called Your Special Education Writes What Your School District Isn't Telling You. And it really is written for parents and for folks who work in school districts. We're big, big supporters of public schools. And so this book in no way, shape, or form drags down public schools. But the fact of the matter is there might be a lot of things you're not being told. So, you know, Rights Law is a wonderful book that tells you what all of the laws are. This is a book that talks about things you're never going to read in the IDEA. It's a combination of our 40 years of combined experience. Fantastic. And I will leave the links for Julie's website, her book, and all the ways that you can contact her in the show notes. So check those out and you will see those. And also, if you don't already follow Julie on social media, I do. And I always learn something. Julie, one of my favorite ones, I think it was you pretending to be at an IEP meeting. And if it's not written down, didn't happen. (laughs) I love that one. Like, yes. (laughs) That's true, unfortunately. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Autism Mom Coach. If you want more information or the show notes and resources from the podcast, visit theautismmomcoach.com. See you next week.